That Sunday school class that's going to be a follow-up to the sermon actually starts today. So immediately after the service, if I say something to offend you or that confuses you, then Joel Mason has agreed to handle all of that for me. So you can head down either one of the hallways there and hang a left or a right into Grace Hall and he's going to lead that class and discuss the sermon. I know where God lives. I know where God lives. If you're looking for his house, I can tell you where to find it. If you want to know where God lives, if you want to find him, I can tell you right now. The Bible can tell you. The Bible is like one of those maps to the stars homes that you can buy in Hollywood. God's word tells us where he lives, where he hangs out, where he dwells. And Nehemiah chapter 1 tells us where God lives. He does not live in a van down by the river. God lives in a house down at the bottom of a hill. If you want to meet with God, you have to go to the bottom. You have to go to the very bottom. Oh, don't get me wrong. God is high and lifted up. He is exalted above all creation. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. But if you want to meet him, you have to go to the very bottom. Why? Because grace flows downhill. Grace flows downhill. That's what Pastor Jack Miller used to say. He's the one, by the way, who came up with the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. He has helped me to understand what it means to rehearse the gospel. He's helped me to understand more than anyone that I know. In his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, Jack Miller said, grace flows downhill. It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace also takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe, only believe. Grace flows downhill. So if you want to meet God, you got to go to the bottom. If you want to grow in Christ, if you want to grow up in Christ, you have to go down first. J.I. Packer said, what we have to realize is that we grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Christians, we might say, grow greater by getting smaller. And that's what we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll see Nehemiah getting down. We'll see Nehemiah growing down into holiness. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is right next to Ezra. Nehemiah lives next door to Ezra. They're neighbors in the Bible. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, they are one book, which is why we're covering both of them in our series called The City of God. 
But before we get down with Nehemiah, here's the lowdown on Nehemiah. The structure of Nehemiah is set up this way. Chapters 1 through 7 focus on rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city walls that surround Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 13 will focus on rebuilding the people of God, seeing the church built up again so that they can be the city of God, the city on a hill shining into our world, representing none other than God himself, Yahweh. As a side note here, if you're new or you're here for the first time today, when we say Yahweh, when we sing Yahweh like we did in our very first song today, Yahweh in Hebrew is God's covenant name. In your English Bibles, as you will see in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 1, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's the English translators letting you know that in Hebrew, the original language This is God's covenant name, Yahweh. So just a side note in case you wonder who I'm talking about when I say Yahweh. We're talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah begins about 13 years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. So the time is about 445 B.C. Artaxerxes is still the king of Persia. He's now in his 20th year serving as king when Nehemiah begins. Here's the situation of Nehemiah. The rebuilding of the city of God, Jerusalem, has come to a halt. We saw this in Ezra chapter 4. What's happening here at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1 is what we saw in Ezra chapter 4 verses 6 through 24. The people of God were commanded to stop building the temple and the city walls that surrounded Jerusalem. Maybe you remember back and remember how those three individuals named Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, asking him to make the Jews stop rebuilding the temple. That's the situation that Nehemiah will face. In fact, Nehemiah's boss is the Persian king, King Artaxerxes. He's the one who made the decree in Ezra 4 that the Israelites had to quit rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. And it's King Artaxerxes. Xerxes, Nehemiah's boss, whom Nehemiah will approach in chapter 2 and ask him to reverse his decision and to allow the Israelites to begin and to continue rebuilding the city walls. Nehemiah essentially is going to ask his boss, Artaxerxes, in chapter 2 to reverse his decision. But it was God in his sovereignty who placed Nehemiah in this very important position so that Nehemiah himself could be the instrument in leading the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. And what was Nehemiah's job? Look quickly at verse 11b. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah tells us his occupation in verse 11. He was a cupbearer to the king. Now we don't know how this nice Jewish boy got to this place, how he got to be the cupbearer to this Persian king. But how he got the job is not important to the author of Ezra and Nehemiah. He just wants us to know that Nehemiah, this nice Jewish boy, 
was cupbearer to the king. Well, what was the cupbearer? I'm glad you asked. The cupbearer was a position of great responsibility and influence. Every king in the ancient Near East longed to have trustworthy and reliable court attendants. The cupbearer was the official taste tester of the king. Since there would be many attempts on a king's life and poisoning was very common, the cupbearer would eat and drink before the king would eat or drink. The cupbearer would most likely uh, draw a little wine in this ladle, pour it into his left hand, and sip a little bit from his hand. And if he survived and didn't croak instantly, then the king knew this wine is good to drink. The same was true for food. This is the job that Nehemiah had that gave him access to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Next week we'll see, Lord willing, if we go here, next week we'll see Nehemiah ask King Artaxerxes for a very huge favor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 and hear the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is with his boss, King Artaxerxes, in Susa, which was the winter capital of the Persian king. So as Artaxerxes and all of his toadies are living it up in Susa in the wintertime, Nehemiah receives this devastating news from his brother and friends. Jerusalem is a wreck. The city walls are still broken down. The gates are still destroyed from when King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed it some 70 plus years earlier. Things are still the way that they are. So as Nehemiah is hanging out with his boss in Susa, one of his brothers and some friends arrive from Judah and Nehemiah asks them about Jerusalem. Nehemiah wants to know how the rebuilding of the city of God is going, how it's progressing. He, he heard of Israel, Israel's history growing up. He knows about their exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He knows how they made an exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And now he wants to know the details. How are things going? So you have to picture Nehemiah. How's the temple look? Have they finished it yet? What's Ezra preaching through right now? Are the people passionate about the Lord? What about the city walls? Are they solid? How's the restoration process going? Do you have plenty of workers? Show me some pictures on your iPhone. Nehemiah's friends inform him that those living in Jerusalem are in great trouble and that they are under great shame. It's really the Hebrew word ridicule and and their scorn. The walls surrounding Jerusalem are in ruins, the gates are destroyed. And how does Nehemiah respond to this news? Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How does Nehemiah respond to the situation 
in Jerusalem. Immediately upon hearing this, he sits down totally flabbergasted and he weeps and he mourns. And he doesn't just weep and mourn. Nehemiah weeps and mourns for days and he fasted and he continued fasting. And when he began craving some tri-tip, he kept on fasting. You can't see Nehemiah all downcast about the state of the church at this point and not at least ask yourself a few questions. Have I ever wept and mourned for days over the state of the church? Have I ever fasted because of what was happening or wasn't happening in the church? That's what Nehemiah does here. He's sobbing. He's bawling. Imagine him down on the ground and he's just lost it. He's heaving. He's crying hysterically. There are piles of used Kleenex surrounding him. He has bloodshot eyes. And why? Because he is devastated about what is happening in Jerusalem, the city of God. Have you ever done that for the church? Have you ever cried over sin? Have you ever wept uncontrollably for this church? Have you ever fasted for this church? Have you ever grieved over the lack of discipleship that is happening? Have you ever grieved and mourned over the lack of prayer and the lack of fellowship? Have you ever looked at how much we owe on our mortgage and wept and fasted? Imagine what we could do if our mortgage was paid off here at Grace. Imagine how much more we could do for the kingdom of God if we didn't have a mortgage. I would be thrilled. I might even speak in tongues if we started weeping and fasting over our mortgage and got it paid off. I might wear a suit and tie every single week if we paid off the mortgage. Notice I said might. Here's the bottom line, Grace. If we're ever going to see change come about in this church, any kind of change, we have to pray. We have to get down, down on our knees and pray. If we're going to be successful at our tagline, making disciple, making disciples, we have to pray. If we're going to fulfill our mission statement, which says we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere and in everything. If we're ever going to be successful at that, then we have to pray. If we're going to reach our city with the gospel, we have to pray. If we're going to be the city of God here within our own city, a city on a hill shining forth the light of the gospel, we have to be a people of prayer. If we're ever going to be empowered by God's grace to be the alternative society in our own society, we have to humble ourselves. We have to get down on our knees. We have to go to the bottom of the hill. Why? Because grace flows downhill. 
If you want to see transformation happen in your life, if you want to see transformation happen in this church, if you want to see transformation happen in your neighborhood, if you want to see transformation happen in your workplace, if you want to see transformation happen in this city, if you want to see transformation happen in your family, with your parenting, or in your marriage, then you have to humble yourself. You have to get down on your knees. If you want to find Jesus, you got to go to the bottom of the hill. That's where he is. That's where you will find him. And that's exactly where Nehemiah went and where he stayed. Nehemiah knew that grace flows downhill, so he camped out at the bottom of a hill for a long time. What we may not catch at first is that Nehemiah's praying lasted about four months Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 give us the time frame in the month of Kislev and in the month of Nisan. So from the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan, Nehemiah says, I prayed for Jerusalem. I prayed for the people of God and the city of God. So from the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan, Nehemiah prayed. And his prayer in verses 5 through 11 was not a one-time prayer. This is where Nehemiah lived, at the bottom, on his knees, and he prayed several months because he needed grace. So we can gather that Nehemiah has been praying for about four months by the time we get to chapter two. And verses five through 11 are a sample of the kind of prayers that Nehemiah prayed for these four months. The prayer that we're gonna see in a moment is actually the prayer that he's gonna pray right before he goes in to talk to King Artaxerxes. But this is the kind of prayer that Nehemiah has been praying at the bottom on his knees for four months. Nehemiah's prayer is very instructive. But look closely at the way Nehemiah prays. He doesn't mention anything trivial. He's not praying about his Aunt Myrtle's ingrown toenail or his recurring headaches. Of course, there's nothing wrong about praying for these things. But do we ever go beyond this? Do we ever pray kingdom-centered prayers? Watch how Nehemiah prays. He focuses on the character of God. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, Nehemiah says, is the awful God. Awful, full of awe, awe-inspiring. Look at verse 5a. And I said, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. God is awesome. Literally, he, in Hebrew, it's fearful. That's a better way to translate the word Yireh here. Oh, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and fearful God. Unfortunately, we have lost what the word awesome means. So the ESV translation doesn't grab us that much. I use the word awesome this week because somebody sent me a thank you card with a gorilla on the front. On the front and when I opened it, I said, this is awesome. I've lost sense of what the word awesome means. But if you begin to see that God is the fearful God, well, you might just get down on your knees. If you saw God with your eyes right now, 
you would suddenly know what the word awesome means. We don't get the word awesome anymore. That's probably due to the 80s. The movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High ruined it for us because at the end of the movie, Jeff Spicoli walks out and says, awesome, totally awesome. And that's when we lost the meaning of the word awesome. So as you read here, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5, substitute the word fearful for awesome. God is awesome. He is full of awe. He is the awful God. He is fearful. And if you saw the triune God right now with your eyes, you would be very, 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 very scared. That's why when people encounter God in the Bible, they fall down on their faces, scared to death. Yahweh is the God of heaven. He is high and lifted up. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is fearful. He is awesome. He'll scare the liver out of you. He's that kind of God. And Nehemiah knows this. So he prays. But Nehemiah also knows that Yahweh is also the faithful God, that God is full of faithfulness to his wayward people. Look at verse 5b, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Steadfast love. Here's that Hebrew word hesed again. You can't escape it when you read the Old Testament. Hesed is God's one-way love, his steadfast love. Hesed is God's commitment to his people, his devotion to his sinful people, his people who don't love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, his people whose history is littered with their constant, continual, nonstop sin. God keeps covenant with his people through the thick and the thin, and Nehemiah knows this, so it motivates him to pray. God is fearful, and he's faithful. And when you combine these two attributes, awful, fearful, and faithful, when you combine the fear of God with the faithfulness of God, this picture of God emerges. He is both scary and dependable. When you combine those two attributes, that he's full of awe, he's fearful, and he's faithful to his people. When you combine the fear of God with the faithfulness of God, this picture of God emerges. He is both scary and dependable. He's both scary and dependable, Grace. But he is also approachable. The scary And dependable God lets sinners approach him. He listens to the prayers of sinners like us. That's amazing. Verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open 
to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. The scary and dependable God listens to the prayers of repentant sinners like you and like me. That is amazing. As Jack Miller said, to be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart that has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. This Holy Father sees humanity in all its nastiness and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. His love explodes into joyous action whenever a convicted sinner turns toward home. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing in his prayer. He is confessing his sin and the sin of the nation. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Notice how there is no whiff of smug spirituality here with Nehemiah. There is no, if those people would get their act together business. There's none of that here. There's no, if those people would just do this, then. There's no, if those people were holy like me, if they just loved God like me. There's none of that here. Nehemiah is not out to throw people under the bus. Why? Because he knows that Jesus and me, Christianity, is not true Christianity. He knows that the church is the people of God and not the person of God. And Nehemiah includes himself in this list of sinners. He says, we have sinned against you. I am my father's house. We have acted corruptly. We have not kept the commandments. In other words... Nehemiah is acknowledging that he and Israel with him have been crushed by the law. They have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that Moses commanded in the law. So the law has done its crushing work 
on Nehemiah and Israel. They are not able to stand up to the requirements of the law, which is perfection, which is sinlessness. That's what the law of God does. It exposes us as sinners so that we see our need of a savior. The apostle Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the law. But the gospel reveals the righteousness from God. Namely, that we are saved by grace through faith. That we inherit an alien foreign righteousness that comes from God that he gives to us. The righteousness of God, the standard of perfection that God demands of each one of us is revealed in the law. And none of us measure up. We're all down for the count spiritually. We're not perfect. We're not without sin. So we get crushed by the demands of the law, the demands of perfection as Nehemiah was crushed. And that should cause us to long for what the gospel reveals, the righteousness from God, the perfect record of law keeping, the sinless record that Jesus secured for us through his life and death. It can be ours, this alien foreign righteousness that we can't muster up on our own. That can come from God to us if we repent and believe. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. He's showing us the distinction between law and gospel. He shows us the law when he says in verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. But then he shows us the promise of the gospel when he says in verse 8, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, and by your strong hand. So the law of God, summed up in the Ten Commandments, crushes us and destroys all hope of our own righteousness and causes us to run to the promise of the gospel. And that's where Nehemiah runs. He tells Yahweh to remember his promise of grace. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 30 here. And this is basically what Nehemiah is saying to the Lord. Yahweh, you promised to discipline us and send us into exile if we were unfaithful to you. And we were unfaithful. And you kept your promise to discipline us. But we have returned to you now. You have gathered us from the ends of the earth and brought us back to Jerusalem. You plopped us down in Jerusalem. You have put your name there. You live there. You make your home in Jerusalem, in your people. Now, please help us. Please listen to us. We need your grace. Restore us. Remember the word of promise that you said that if we return to you, you would restore us. Nehemiah knows that he is needy. He is needy 
K-N-E-E-D-Y, because he's down on his knees. In fact, the Hebrew stresses how desperate and needy Nehemiah is. The Hebrew word here, anah, which the ESV translates as oh, is this emphatic term for entreaty. You could translate it as please, please have mercy. It's a term that's actually used in the Old Testament in life and death situations when people are down on their knees and they're about to be killed and they're saying, please, please have mercy. It's a term that's used for anyone in the Old Testament who pleads for forgiveness of some heinous sin that they've committed and they know they deserve God's judgment and they say, please, please have mercy. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He is throwing himself down, down on his knees. He is throwing himself down on God's mercy. Nehemiah is falling down in humility. The law has crushed him and brought him down to his knees. And now he throws himself down upon God's mercy. Why? Because Nehemiah knows that grace flows downhill. Nehemiah knows that if he is going to be transformed, if the nation of Israel is going to be transformed, if the city walls are to be transformed, then they must humble themselves and cry out for grace. Nehemiah would have endorsed Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, because in it, Tim Chester says, humility is the secret to receiving grace. People used to talk about the higher life of sanctification, but what we really need is the lower life. If we truly want the grace of holiness, we must get lower, humbling ourselves and leaving the lifting to God. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. He is humbling himself and letting God do the lifting up. And he's not alone. There are others who are with Nehemiah who are praying the same kinds of prayers as Nehemiah. There are others who delight to fear God's name, he says. There are others in Persia where Nehemiah is and others in Jerusalem, the city of God where Yahweh has put his name, Nehemiah says. There are others who are praying. There are other people falling down on their knees and meeting God at the bottom. There are others who would agree that grace flows downhill. And God's grace will flow down and empower Nehemiah to lead the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. We'll see that as we make our way through the book. We'll see God's transforming grace all the way through the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see a whole lot of grace flows downhill. And what a great reminder as we prepare to eat the Lord's Supper today. Grace came down in the person of Jesus Christ. As John 1.14 says, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent. He made his home here with us, fallen sinners. He came down. Jesus came down and set up his home among sinners like us. Grace flowed down to us in the incarnation. Grace flowed down to us in the life and death of Jesus. God met us 
in Jesus. And this table is where we meet God today. His grace comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Here at the table, we enjoy the benefits of being united to Christ. Here we get strength for the journey ahead. Here is where God is. This is the bottom grace. This is the bottom of the hill. This is where grace is. In the Lord's Supper, communion, we are enjoying fellowship with the scary and dependable God. In the elements of the Lord's Supper, we see the holiness of God and the mercy of God coming together. In the Lord's Supper, we see Jesus in whom the holiness and mercy of God come together. In the Lord's Supper, we find grace. We find Jesus, the awesome and faithful God, the scary and dependable God. To help prepare our hearts Be reminded of the promise of the gospel and what Jack Miller said. To be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart that has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. This Holy Father sees humanity in all its nastiness and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. His love explodes into joyous action whenever a convicted sinner turns toward home. Let's go to our Father now, the one who sees all of our nastiness. And yet because of his son Jesus, he is given to strange, tender excesses. Let's turn toward home where our father explodes in joyous action. Let's go home, Grace, to where God lives at the bottom of the hill where Grace is where Jesus is. Father, we come to you now at the bottom, on our knees, in humility, and saying that you're a very strange God, that you would burst forth in joyous action when we repent that you would show us these strange, tender excesses. And the whole reason you do it is because of your son, Jesus. Because we are crushed by the law, we admit that we're guilty sinners. As we come to the table, we say, God, forgive us. So many sins, so much baggage we bring in here in our hearts and minds this morning, Father. Forgive us of wicked thoughts. Forgive us of wicked words. Forgive us of wicked actions. And forgive us of the wicked motives that were driving all of it. God, would you now burst forth in joyous action as we turn our eyes to your son, Jesus Christ. Would you show us more of your strange, 
tender excesses here as we enjoy fellowship with you in the Lord's Supper. May we be encouraged and get strength for the journey. May we not come with morbid introspection, but just freely acknowledging our sin, repenting, and then celebrating your grace, your grace which flows downhill. In Jesus' name, amen.